You're listening to the podcast of Antioch East Baptist Church in Magnolia, Arkansas. This is Pastor Ron Owen. We're so glad that you've joined us today. If you have any comments or inquiries, you can send those to us at aebc123 at me.com. Well, Sunday morning, I, I talked to you about what Jesus said in a, in a sentence that we focused on out of John chapter 10. And that sentence went like this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And we said that knowing was reciprocal because in another portion of the text and actually throughout the text, we see that the knowing goes both ways. I know uh, them, I know my sheep and they know me. He said that you, speaking to Jews, you do not believe in me because you are not of my sheep, which I think is a very interesting phrase. So when is, when is so some friend of mine asked the question, when does a sheep become a sheep? Right? So you do not believe in me because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. They know me and they follow me. Last night, we expanded the idea of following Jesus Christ by that great challenging passage out of Luke chapter 14, the terms of discipleship. And that challenges me every time I think about that text. Tonight, I want to, I w- I want to expand a bit further this idea of hearing God and knowing God. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And we're going to do that by going to something that I alluded to in that message on Sunday morning, 1 Samuel chapter 3. So everybody take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 3, all right? This is an amazing passage to me. It's been attractive to me for many years, but it really just increases in its uh, richness to me. 1 Samuel in chapter 3, and in a moment we'll read uh, several verses of this uh, together. You remember that Samuel was uh, dedicated to the Lord by his very godly mother, praying mother, named Hannah. And Elkanah, who also appears to be a righteous man, a good man, Elkanah was in favor of what happened, transpired there in the temple when Hannah was praying. You remember the story, I hope, something of that story. When, when Hannah actually dedicated this child to the Lord and committed the child actually to come and live in Shiloh, where the temple, where the tabernacle was in the beginning of Israel's occupation of uh, the land of Canaan, just after they'd conquered the land. Now, it must have been a a very dangerous, felt like a very dangerous and difficult move for Samuel's parents, Elkanah and Hannah, because no doubt they had already heard about the immorality of Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Uh, They were notoriously wicked men, yet they were priests. They profaned the the priesthood in many ways, and among them was their immorality with some of the women who came and offered sacrifices. 
And it's just a, it's, it's a terrible, wicked chapter in the history of Israel to think about this happening there in Shiloh at the, where the tabernacle of the Lord was, uh, was set up there for, for Israel to, to use. So they, they were certainly, surely recognized the danger that was, that was there for their little son that they were going to take and give away to, the, to Eli to raise him. It's like a bad foster home, you know, an environment that could be toxic. Uh, there was nothing that you find in this text that could assure ha uh, Hannah and Elkanah that their son Samuel would be a godly man in Israel. In fact, in a, it's very interesting in chapter 2. Second, chapter 2, verse 12, describing Eli's sons, here's what he says. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Now interestingly, if you'll flip then to chapter 3 of 1 Samuel and verse 7, the phrase is, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. So do you understand why I'm saying I mean, what is there to keep Samuel from becoming in this environment just like Hophni and Phinehas under this uh, father, Eli? What kind of surrogate father would Eli be? He was an overindulgent man. He was very old. He was very fat. He broke, broke his neck by falling backwards off a stool and uh, killed himself with his own weight. And he was nearly blind. So what kind of daddy is Eli going to be with, to this, uh, this little child that had been given and dedicated to the Lord and put under his care? It's a frightening prospect. That idea of not knowing the Lord, your child not knowing the Lord, is also a frightening prospect, isn't it? Does some of you rehearse that and say that to each other sometimes? You know, my son doesn't know the Lord, or my daughter doesn't know the Lord, or my grandson or my granddaughter doesn't know the Lord. Hardly anything you could say that would be more concerning than that idea that here is a person who's going to come up through this world and then into eternity without knowing the Lord. Knowing the Lord is the most important thing to you, and yet they do not know the Lord. Now we're going to 1 Samuel 3. I want to talk to you about your grandchildren and your child, and really you, and every person who comes to Christ. But I, I want to focus on the way the Scripture does here, this text does, about a child. And I, 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 I want to focus on this childhood conversion we find in this chapter. And we're, it's, so, it's such an interesting thing that we have to go a thousand years before Christ to find what appears to be the only story of a childhood conversion in the entire Bible. Now, I, I don't know. That should give us pause, I think, a little bit. Uh, but... I, 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 I wouldn't want to say that there were no childhood conversion, but there's no story that I'm aware of of a childhood conversion except by going back a thousand years before Christ came to this world. 
to look at the life of Samuel. Samuel, contrary to the picture that is in most Sunday school rooms, was not a believer in God when he was a preschooler. He probably believed in the Lord. He came to the, he was weaned from his mother. And that may have been as, as, as long a time as three years. It could, it could possibly be that way. But let's just say we'll extend it to three years. After three years, he was brought then to Eli. And several things happened in the storyline. Uh, for instance, the Bible tells us in chapter, we'll just look at chapter 2 again. I'll just let you read it for yourself. Look down at verse 18, Some what happened uh, about Samuel and, and the time frame, the time that was transpiring. It says in verse 18, now Samuel was ministering before the Lord. By the way, that's just what Hophni and Phinehas did. They ministered before the Lord, but didn't know the Lord. As a boy wearing a linen ephod, and his mother would make him a little robe and bring it to him from year to year when she would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. This would be uh, an obligation to Jewish people to come and offer that sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children from this woman in place of the one she dedicated to the Lord. And as they went to, and they went to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived, and she gave birth to three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. Now, uh, many people would think that, uh, just without certainty, but think that, he, that Samuel was probably between 11 and 15 years of age when he has the encounter with God that we're going to read about in chapter 3 of 1 Samuel. So I think all of that is very curious and interesting in, in this light. In evangelicalism, in, even in my lifetime, I've watched the threshing uh, the, the threshing machine of evangelism cut closer and closer to the ground and younger and younger and younger and younger in terms of the children, hopefully, supposedly, coming to know Jesus Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, I, don't, I think God can do anything He wants to do. Amen. He can do anything He wants to do. But it just is an interesting thing that should give us pause that we don't have in the New Testament and we don't have but this one experience in the whole of the Bible, as far as I understand, as a story of conversion of a child. And that child was between 11 and 15 years of age. All right? So it's something we just need to think about carefully. Because it, lack of care in this area has caused, in my estimation, a lot of problems. It's put the names of millions of people, on the, literally millions of people, on the rolls of uh, otherwise good churches that don't show any evidence of being Christians. So it's this fault line that we have in our churches, Baptists of all types, right? It's this fault line that really must be corrected and needs to be corrected. But it has been left untended and has caused a lot, a lots and lots of difficulties for the churches in the, in the name of the Lord and the testimony of God. People who don't know the Lord on the rolls of churches. It's an interesting thing if you look in verse 21 of chapter 2. 
Or, yeah, uh, let's see if I've got it right. Yes. Let me see if I've got the verse exactly right. First, actually, I, I think it's verse 12. Let me find this here. Verse 12. I'm so sorry. I can't find it exactly right now. But it says of him that Samuel, oh, verse 26. There it is. Forgive me. Verse 26. Look at this phrase. The boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor both with the Lord and with men. Have you heard that phrase before? Where did you hear it? Well, you heard it about Jesus. It's an interesting thing that almost the same wording is used about Jesus Christ when he was 12 years of age uh, and in the temple, remember, when they visited Jerusalem. Right? Now, at this period of time, there was no bar mitzvah. Uh, this wasn't, that wasn't a custom at the time. But perhaps there was something that was said about young, young boys as they became men uh, in that society like this that was said about Jesus and said about Samuel as well. Just another indication that he was not just a little, he was not just a little preschooler uh, when this event happened. He was somebody, I believe, a little bit older than that. Preteen or a teenager, as we would say. Now, I want us to read this, uh, a portion of this chapter. And I want you to ask, as we read through this, what is the hope of my child or my grandchild, or for that matter, any other person that I love? What is the hope that they will be saved? What can I look to? What can I, hope, what can I wish and pray for that would happen so that they might be saved? Will you ask that question as we read through this? Just see, follow this experience because I think it conforms to what the rest of the Bible says about this issue. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the boy, Samuel, was ministering to the Lord before Eli. And word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. It happened at that time as Eli was lying down in his place. Now his eyesight had begun to grow dim and he could not see well. And the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Likely early in the morning then. And when Samuel was lying down... In the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was, that the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And then he ran to Eli, and he said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I, I didn't call you. Uh, go, go and lie down again. And uh, the Lord called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel arose and he went to Eli and he said, Here I am, for you called me. But he answered, I didn't call you, my son. Lie down again. Now then this famous phrase, this very important phrase. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord yet been revealed to him. So the Lord called Samuel again for the third time. And he arose and he went to Eli and he said, Here I am, for you called me. 
Then Eli discerned that the Lord was calling the boy. And Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be if he calls you, that you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and laid down in his place. Then the Lord came and stood and called, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. Now, we could read further, but we're going to concentrate just on this section right here. Wow, what, a, what an amazing experience took place. And the, the author of the Bible, the Holy Spirit, made sure that we got this full story. It's very, very important. What happened here changes everything for Samuel. This is the turning point for him that means he will not be like Hophni and Phinehas. Everything is changing right here. It changes for eternity. You'll see Samuel in the other world uh, in the future. Now, I want to make three observations here that will help us understand the way this works, I believe. The first observation is this. Christ called Samuel. Let me say that again because it's not apparent on the face of it. Christ called Samuel. Yeah. Now, there's an interpretive hint here. And the hint is that it's Christ. The hint is found in this last experience. Look at this again. It says, verse 10, the Lord, that's the word Yahweh, the Lord came and stood and called. Have you ever seen that before? It took me, it was years before I ever saw that before. He came and stood and he called as at other times. Hmm. Now you say, well, isn't this what we call a theophany? That is an, a, a, an epiphany of God, an appearance of, of God? Yes, I'd say it is a theophany. But more particularly, it is a Christophany. Now here's why I know that. Because Jesus was very strong about this idea. And he said it more than once. Nobody has seen the Father at any time. Right? So these appearances that happen in the Old Testament are appearances of the pre-incarnate. Now you know the word incarnate, which means car carne means flesh. So pre-incarnate, pre-fleshly appearance of Christ when he came, was born in this through Mary and, and the Holy Spirit uh, years later. That's the incarnation. But I'm saying the pre-incarnate Christ was in his world and he appeared many times in his world. He stood there and he spoke. He came, he stood, and he spoke right there so that Samuel could hear him and talk with him. Now, this is the one who created was the agent by which the worlds were created. Yes. Two or three times the scripture says that because the job of Christ, one of the major jobs of Christ 
is the is the revealing of the Godhead. And so, in the New Testament, we find in the Old Testament we find God created the world. In the New Testament, we find God created the world through Christ. It was through Christ that the worlds were created. Colossians, Paul tells us in Colossians and in Hebrews and in John one, if you remember. And everything that was created was created through Christ because they knew the func. This was the function of Christ. One of the functions of Christ was to reveal the Godhead. So he was the one who created the world. He was the one who breathed into the nostrils of Adam. He was the one who walked with Adam and Eve. He was the one who stood next to Abraham and showed him the stars. He was the one who heard Abraham's plea for Sodom and Gomorrah when the two angels and the Lord walked up. He's the one who wrestled with Jacob. He's the one who met Moses in the burning bush. He is the one who stood and spoke to Moses like one man speaks to another. And he is the one who appeared to multiple prophets throughout the history of the king, kings of Israel. That's the one we're talking about here. He appeared to Samuel. One of the assurances of this is found in verses uh, Chapter 3, verses 20 and, 20, or 20 and 21, if you'll look at that with me, please. Just look at the end of the chapter where these words appear. All Israel from Dan, that's way up high at the very top of Israel, to Beersheba, way down low, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh. Because the Lord revealed himself to, Shiloh, to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. There are many people who would make the case that this term word here, as is used in some other places in the scripture, is a term for the pre-incarnate Christ. It may be the very term, I won't die for this right here in this text, but it may be indeed uh, what the Lord is meaning in John chapter 1 when he says, and the Word became flesh. Because it's one of the terms for the pre-incarnate Christ that shows up in the, old, in the Old Covenant. This may be one of those appearances. The Lord revealed himself by the Word of the Lord. Hmm. So Christ called Samuel. Isn't that interesting? But this was, a, this was an experience with Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ. The Christ who would die for him later, the Christ who would be raised for him, the Christ who will yet come again for him. That's the one who appeared to him. <laughs> it's just stunningly beautiful, isn't it, when you think about it? The second observation I want to make is this. Samuel now knew the Lord. Yeah. Samuel now knew the Lord. It says in verse 7, of course, as we've already mentioned, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had the word of the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord yet been revealed to him. Nor had the word of the Lord yet been revealed to him. Do you, get, do you get what's going on here? So there was a time when Samuel didn't know the Lord. And now there is a time where he does know the Lord. 
I said this Sunday morning, but I'll say it again. Jesus defined eternal life this way. He said, this is eternal life, that you know that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. My sheep know me. My sheep know me. And I know them. If you do not know the Lord, you cannot be a Christian. Right? It's just... It's another way of saying that one is a Christian. They know the Lord. And from this point, Samuel knew Christ. It's incredible. Everything changed. Everything was different. He became eternally different than Hophni and Phinehas, who did not know the Lord, nor did they ever in their life, apparently. And that's what your child must experience or your grandchild or your spouse or your friend that you're so concerned for. That's what they must experience. They must know the Lord. A third observation. Samuel knew Christ only because of the revelation of Christ. He knew Christ only because of the revelation of Christ. I have to remind you that most people who hear about Christ reject Him. That is inherent. They run from the light. So how could it be that anybody accepts Him and opens their heart to Him and knows Him? How could it ever be? It's by the revelation. It's by the revelation of the Lord. The overwhelming revelation of the attractive, most beautiful Lord Jesus Christ. So what your kids need and what your spouse needs or what your friend needs, your daddy or your mom even needs, is something you can't control. The very thing they need the most is something you cannot control. The Lord just doesn't share His glory with anybody. You just can't get credit for this. You can't make it happen. Not even Paul could make it happen. They'd run him out of town, right? But as I told you before, the called didn't run him out of town, right? This truth gave Jonathan Edwards the great... 1700s pastor theologian is just one of the remarkable figures in our history part of the great awakening uh, a man God used in amazing ways but Jonathan Edwards was actually kicked out of his church so that's always a comfort to any pastors who are here Uh, here's one of the greatest of all pastors and he was kicked out of his church he went then to way up north to Stockbridge Uh, Stockbridge was just a outstation way far north and it was mostly Indians that were in the church and the Indians uh, at that time were very uneducated literate he had been in a church in Northampton Massachusetts and now he was way away from the educated center of their world he could talk theology he could talk in rather uh, complex 
sentences. He could, they knew the history of the Bible. They, they could put things together just like you can when I talk to you. And you, you know these pieces of the puzzle, right? And you can hear me talk and put things together. But he, he wasn't in that kind of place anymore. So this great learned man, man that the Encyclopedia Britannica says is one of the greatest minds that America ever produced. This man was off there in, in Stockbridge working with some people who had no education whatsoever and didn't know the slightest thing really about the Lord. And here is what he determined that was a comfort to him. By just one step of the revelation of God's glory and these illiterate people can be saved. <laughs> oh, that was, that was big to him. <laughs> that was really important to him. And it's really important to, her, to us. Do you know that the most incorrigible person you know could be converted with one side of Jesus? If God takes away the blinders and they see the truth about Jesus... It's all over. <laughs> I want us to, to keep our place in First Samuel, of course, but let's let's go to Second Corinthians and look at a great passage in this respect, and just think about it, meditate on it for a minute. Second Corinthians chapter four. Please turn with me there. Second Corinthians four. And let's just see what we find the Apostle Paul saying about. This The Apostle Paul rests his entire New Covenant ministry on this idea that Christ reveals himself to people. And really two chapters are taken up with this subject, chapter, chapter 3 and chapter 4. But let's just pick up something in chapter 4 here. It says in verse 3 of chapter 4 this, And even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. I just need to read that again. Can I do that again? Because I think it's really full, just pregnant with meaning. Verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, that's Satan, of course, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the, the good news, the light of the good news of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You see the Godhead in Christ, right? That's how we understand. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves 
as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. And in that fiat moment of creation, he gave light, right, in the darkness. Is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. <laughs> Does that make some sense? So we have this uh, tr tremendous problem. We have a problem of blindness. How close can you get to the real thing and not see it? Well, if you're blind, you can, you can get this close and not see it. People stood around Jesus and heard him speak his words and saw his miracles and still didn't believe. Isn't that incredible? Others did believe and were overwhelmed by that, but so many didn't believe. How could that even be possible? It's only possible because of blindness. So, if the Lord is pleased to remove the blindness and allow them to see, then that's when everything happens. It's like light in coming into creation in the dark world where there was no form, everything was void. He says, let there be light, and there is light. That's what happens in our hearts when the Lord shines in our hearts through letting us see the glory of God in the face of Christ, in the gospel. It is most pronounced in the gospel that we understand the most beauty of Christ. That's where the most beautiful things about Christ are seen, right? And as the gospel is shared, it is that that God uses when he is ready to take off the blindness, the scales of the eyes, and allow them to see its beauty where they are overwhelmed and cannot resist anymore. Everybody resists. Let me tell you, everybody resists. That's the nature of man. They resist what they don't know. They resist what they don't love. They, don't want, they can't love what they don't love. But when God takes away the blindness and shines in their hearts with the gospel and they see, they can't resist anymore. Right. Even Paul on the road to Damascus, he had a more, um, you know, a more amazing experience than most people, right? He saw a vision. He actually saw Christ. But it's no difference in essence than what happened to Samuel or what happens to us. Yeah. It's no different in essence. We see Christ. That's what he says. We, for this is what happened to us, right? For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who shone in our hearts. Right? To give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's what's happened to us. It happens to every person who is a, it becomes a believer. And this is where everything happens. Let me just say, why do we say, why did Jonathan Edwards say, this is the one step, this is the one thing, the revelation of Christ, that is the most important thing? Well, uh, I, he said it because everything starts right there. In other words, where do you get repentance? Where do you get hatred for your sin? Oh, man, you'll hate sin when you see the light of God. 
right? The mind of Christ. Where do you get belief in the Lord? When you see Christ, right? Where do you get fellowship and discipleship? When you see Christ, right? You will do anything for that one that you are overwhelmingly attracted to. And by the way, that not only has a beginning, it has an ongoing effect on the believer's life. For he says in chapter 3, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror. He means by that, what you do in a mirror is you stare at it, you gaze at it. Right? You try to see what's in it. You look and see if you've got a pimple on your nose. Right? You're looking. You're gazing. So as in a mirror... But we all with unveiled face, that is the law is gone, unveiled face, that which blinded us is taken away, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. It's an ongoing effect. So there is a beginning and there's an ongoing work of the glory of Christ gazing at Christ. So Paul, again, I'm saying, has based his entire ministry, his entire New Covenant ministry, on the, the effectiveness of this one thing. If this didn't happen, all Paul could expect would be rejection. That's all he could expect. But because this happens, he's, he's full of hope, <laughs> right? God does this supernatural thing. And he did it, in his case, many, many times. This is the reason how, in many cases, in the, let's say, in the book of Acts, as you're reading the history of the unfolding of Christianity, you see that people believe in the Lord just, I mean, they're just hearing the gospel preached, and they believe, says they believe. I mean... There's no prayer at the end, or there's no walking, changing geography. Nothing's happening like that that has to happen, right? Why? Because in the gospel, if the Lord chooses to take away the blindness, they see, right? And they just believe. They just believe, right, in what, what they see. In this case, seeing is believing. I saw years ago a, a video, which you can still see, I think, on YouTube, called Etau, Etau, which means it is truth. It's about the uh, Mok tribal people of Papua New Guinea. It's a, it's a video put out by Ethnos 360, which is the old New Tribes Ministry. I don't know if any of you have seen this. Nod your head if you have. But it's a fantastic, amazing story. We have here uh, the, the Malk people come in together. About 300 of them, 310 of them gather. It's really the whole tribe coming together on some bleachers that have been built. And the, the new tribe's ministry at the time uh, came up with the idea of the chronological presentation of the Bible. It's kind of one of the handful of things in the last few decades that have been really uh, amazingly used of God. They just start at Genesis and start unfolding the revelation of God, you know, throughout the history of the Bible. And then they get to Christ and tell the story of Christ. 
And so this is what ha was happening. So day after day they would meet and this missionary would go through the, the chronological story of the Bible with pictures and sort of acting things out and so forth. They got to the, they got to the thing. It actually lasted three months. lasted three months. After three months the day came to explain the betrayal of Jesus Christ. And when he explained that, you could just see that the tribal people were crestfallen. They just, it just was on their faces. They were just so sad about this. The next day, they gathered early in the morning before sunrise. And the missionary explained the death of Christ. And they were just... I mean, they were destroyed. And then the missionary waited for three days. <laughs> and he got the group back together and, of course, told them about the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they were amazed. All over this group, they began to say that they now understood that Christ died for them. They had been in sin, and Christ took their sin, and now they, now they know. They saw it. And they, these normally reserved people, some of them just began to speak out and say, I see it, I understand, I believe. And then someone said, Etau, which means, it is true. And another one said, Etau, and another one said, Etau, and Etau, and Etau. And listen, this is the honest story here. This is what happened in the history of this tribe. For two and a half hours, they jumped up and down saying, Etau, Etau, Etau. This spontaneous rejoicing. It's true. I believe it. They had seen the glory of God in the face of Christ in the gospel. In his death and resurrection. An even greater display of glory post-death and resurrection than before that Samuel saw. It changed them. It brought them from death to life. takes a lot to move a person from death to life, right? From the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. From selfishness to love. It takes a lot to change a heart like that, to change a person like that. From rebellion to submission to Christ. And that's what God can do in a moment in the revelation of His Son. Amen. Now let me say a few practical things to you that will be helpful to us, I think. First of all, if all this is true, uh, stop depending on accoutrements to the gospel that are artificial, man-made, I say this lovingly because for many years I tried to use these things, such as the, the feeling that there is a necessity to pray a sinner's prayer. Did you know that's not even in the Bible? 
you know, you, you just feel, we, we learn so many things from the backs of booklets. But when we look into the Bible, we see different things are going on. Now, God's not against our praying and our communicating with Him. And I'm not saying God cannot do that. I think it would be the testimony of some of you, right? But it's not a necessary, I just want you to understand the thing, it's, it's not a necessary thing to pray a prayer with certain words in it. I've heard people say, if I don't say those words, how could, am I really a Christian, Brother Jim, if I, I didn't ask Jesus into my heart? That's a phrase that's not even in the scriptures, by the way. It's not, it's, not, it's not the right idea, actually. And so we just get into these things, and, and we buy into them, and we don't think very carefully. But these are, these are, these are things people did that God may use. And thank God he may use them, right? But the real point is not those things, is what I'm saying. It's not, you don't need to have any dependence upon that kind of thing, you see, or changing geography in a church building. There's nothing in the Bible about that. So you don't have to depend upon that. That doesn't make a Christian, right? Don't depend on those things. And I hope you, I hope you don't misunderstand me here. Uh, don't depend upon those things. You tell them to pray this prayer. They, and they'll be saved. You tell your children, you know, son, if you pray this prayer, one of the days when you're going to pray this prayer, you're going to be saved. God doesn't lie. You know what? He prays the prayer and he's not saved. Right? <laughs> That's the problem. And then you're over the barrel, right? Because you said if you pray that prayer, you're going to be saved. It's like it's a, don't treat that like a talisman or some, something, you know, that you just do that thing and you're going to get this. God's not a vending machine. And look, if, if you have seen Christ's glory in the gospel, I couldn't beat you away. Right? I mean, I don't have to get you to change locations in this room. I don't have to do that. I couldn't stop you. From, I couldn't beat you away from being a follower of Christ and making that known. You see, I couldn't do that. There's power in the gospel. Don't take the power away from the gospel and put it in something else, you see. Put, put it in the gospel. It's in the gospel and in Jesus revealing himself. That's where the power is. Thank God he's, he, he overrules a lot of things that we do anyway. And he shows himself, you know, we're, we all are testimonies of that, right? But, but it's not the essence of it. Second thing I want to encourage is this. Uh, preach the gospel. Preach the gospel to your kids. Grandparents, preach the gospel to your grandkids. They ought to hear the gospel from you. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, right? It's the gospel. It's a powerful thing because it's in that if God takes the blinders away, they see the beauty of Christ and they're attracted to Him. They no longer are a resistor. They're a responder to Christ. Preach the gospel. Uh, the gospel may alienate those who are not called, but it is the means, the wings, by which Christ's glory is seen most prominently. And then pray. 
Pray for God to do something you cannot accomplish. Your hand, you're really in a tough spot. If you could do something to make a person a Christian, wouldn't you do it just with all your might? But you just can't, you just can't do it. You cannot make this happen. Not even Paul could do that. Right? Pray for God to do something. Ask God to do something you cannot accomplish. Pray like Hannah. Cry out to God. Pray like Spurgeon's mother. <laughs> you know, it must have been difficult for Spurgeon's mom to watch her son. Who, Spurgeon was a young man under a great deal of turmoil from age, about the same age as we are talking about here for Samuel, between about age 11 to about age 15. He said, I was the most miserable person. I was, under the, I was in the dungeon of the law, and I couldn't escape. He said, I tried to believe, and I couldn't. I heard my aunt from Warren, Arkansas, say that very same thing to me. I would try to believe, and I couldn't. He was in total, he was in real despair as a young man. And he said it just like it ruined my childhood in a sense. But look what happened, right? So he was, he was going to go to church on a Sunday morning and it got snowy in Colchester. He saw the little Methodist chapel down at the end of the street from where he was walking and he decided he needed to go there instead of the other church where he intended to go. So he turned in to the little primitive, it's called a primitive Methodist chapel there in Colchester. And everybody was gone. The pastor of the church didn't make it. He got snowed, snowed in. He couldn't come. There were just a handful of people there in that cold building. And he said under the, sort of under the balcony, under the galley, and, a, and a, a, a common worker, an artisan, who wasn't, I mean, the, the Methodists were pretty primitive in every way back then, I have to tell you. And they didn't, they weren't, not, he wasn't necessarily an educated man at all. But he got up butchering the king's English. And he did his best, a deacon, he was a deacon, he did his best to fill in for the pastor. And he chose a text, and his text was this, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all ye ends of the earth. Out, out of Isaiah 45. He didn't pronounce those words correctly. It didn't seem to matter. Spurgeon said, I thought when I heard that verse... Um, there was a. <laughs> I'm always so moved at the way the Lord works. Uh, <laughs> um, the, I thought when I heard that verse, there was a glimmer of hope for me. He said the preacher began like this. He said, "This is a very simple text indeed. It says, look." Now, looking don't take a deal of pain, a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You might be the biggest fool, and yet you could look. 
A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then he said, the text says, look unto me. I, he said, in broad Essex, according to Spurgeon, many of you are looking to yourselves. But it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some say, look to God, the Father. No, look to Him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some, on, some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. He's right. He's right what he says. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. And then Spurgeon said the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I am sweating, sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I'm dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner. Look unto me. Look unto me. Spurgeon said when he had managed to spin out about 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of the tether. And then he looked at me under the gallery. And everybody, he said, knew I was a stranger because there were just a handful of people there. And just fixing his eyes on me, as if he knew all my heart, he said this, Young man, you look miserable. Well, Spurgeon said, I did. But I'd not been accustomed to having remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow, struck right home. Amen. He continued, and you will always be miserable. Miserable in life, and miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment you will be saved. And then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could do. They were most nearly Pentecostal. <laughs> Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, you have nothing to do but look and live. And Spurgeon said, I looked and I looked till I thought I could look my eyes away. And that's how he, was, that's how he came into the family of God. Yeah. It's just by that one step of the revelation of God in the gospel when God opens the eyes to see. Do you get the idea? People may scoff at some message like this and think it has no power. <laughs> How foolish we are to say that. It's in Christ. It's the look at Christ, not the words. It's the look at Christ that changes everything. The hindrances are removed. And that young man was transformed forever. And he became Spurgeon that we know today. Right? My. Well, I hope you understand why. I felt like it was important to talk about this message tonight. This is the way we need to think. We, we need to think about our ministries this way with people, our concern for our families. Our, you know, just we need to see that there is such power in the gospel as God reveals himself. 
and not look to yourself, but look to Him. 